Chapter Sixteen of the Story of Avis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Story of Avis by Elizabeth Stuart Phelps. Chapter Sixteen. It is the low man thinks the woman low. Tennyson. Thou hast met, found, and seized me, and knowest what my ways are. Hold me, hold a shadow, the wings as they quiver. Hold me, hold a dream, smoke, a track on the river. Theodore Prodinus John Rose was one of those people to whom one may surrender a confidence and never repent it. This is to say, John Rose had a rare nature and therefore one which educated him for the peculiar drafts upon delicacy of organization involved in the calling of a Christian preacher. At the outset of his work in Harmouth he had adopted a plan never, to my knowledge, put in use by a pastor in precisely this form, in more than one other instance. Doubtless there are others unknown to me. The experiment resulted from a chance word of his wife's. Coy, with the grasping capacity for self-exhaustion characteristic of the New England girl, had married the profession with the man. She always said, "'Our work, our people, our pulpit, and our salary.' She flew from the nursery to the prayer-meeting, from the mission-school to the commencement dinner, from the church-fair to the Italian class. Young married ladies losing caste in Harmouth, if they do not maintain a palpable connection with that sad, forsaken world which has no baby, poor thing, to interfere with its course of reading. Coy, who had never been considered religious before her marriage, and who sorely felt her lack of clear theological acumen, said one day, "'John, a minister's business is precisely—what? When we talk about saving people we mean exactly—' I don't answer conundrums for any other minister," said the Reverend John, thoughtfully calculating the distance from hand to eye between the baby's head and the ceiling, as he stood playing his after-dinner game of human pitch-penny with that remarkable infant. But I consider my business a very simple affair. The human animal seems to have been—for what inscrutable purpose, you young porpoise, I'll not attempt to say, and you'll never grow up to prove if you jerk yourself over my lame shoulder like that endowed with what we find it convenient to call, for lack of a better term, an immortal soul. "'John,' said wife, in the tone she used at tea, treading on his toes under the table when he propounded some doctrine that savoured of laxity, with a conservative supply spending the Sunday. "'What's the matter now?' asked John, giving the baby a double twist that the offspring of any less muscular Christianity would have resented. "'Have I said anything heretical again to-day?' "'I think not. It sounds right on the whole,' said Coy anxiously. "'But I never know where you'll turn up, John. An immortal soul is all right so far as it goes, of course, John dear. But the trouble I have with theology is I never know what's coming next. And your theology especially, somehow, John, is—you know, I like to have you make it very plain, because the baby is usually mixed up in it a little. There you'll bump her head. Or else, you see, I find it hard to fix my mind when I'm being kissed. If I had been intellectual, like Avis, I suppose I shouldn't mind. Certainly it is quite true about the immortality of the soul. But old Mrs. Bobley—you know the old lady behind the last pillar who always cries in the wrong place, with the ironed purple strings to her bonnet—asked me yesterday what I thought were your views as to the precise nature of the ministerial vacation. I told her I'd ask. 
She said she hoped you realized, for you were so very young, the awful responsibility which rested on a minister if a single soul in his congregation had never been worried—no, never been warned, that was it—by his pastor. I said I supposed so. And then she asked me if I knew a good recipe for Parker House rolls. But now, John, dear, I'll tell you what I think a minister is. He's a kind of doctor, John, don't you see? A soul doctor. I don't pretend to understand about sin. I suppose that's because I've never associated with wicked people. But it seems to me like an awful disease, like scarlet fever. People's souls are sick—sick, sick all about us, John. And if you can cure them, you know—" Amen," said John gravely. Or if you can only ease them a little. Amen," said John again. Of course I don't mean quite by yourself, unless anybody greater were behind said Coy quickly, slipping with the characteristic reticence of the atmosphere in which she had been bred, from explicit expression of the more vital elements of religious feeling. But I've been thinking, John, why shouldn't a minister have an office system, like a doctor, and be at home so many hours a day to aching people?" It was this suggestion which John Rose, in carrying out almost to the letter, had made so memorable a feature in his Harmouth work. He announced not only from the pulpit, and in the vaguely polite ways usually thought sufficient to relieve the ministerial conscience, but literally upon his modest door-plate, like a physician of the body, that he who assumed to prescribe for the health of the soul would be within to patients from such an hour to such an hour, making it in due time quietly understood among the heterogeneous population of the town, that he held himself answerable to the call of any creature in any lack, were it of a friend or a pillow, were it of heaven or a dinner were it of forgiveness, or flannels. In the course of six months from the inauguration of this project, the young minister's heart and hands were overwhelmed with what Coy called the aching people. The aching people of a place in which the intelligence of society is almost wholly absorbed in the impartment and the reception of intellectual culture, have a certain bitterness in their capacity and ability to ache, not to be matched in communities of broader and more human interests. John Rose received into his healthy young heart, as within the walls of a newly consecrated temple, these refugees of human fate, on an average, perhaps, to the number of twenty souls each day. This method of labour brought him into contact with what we are wont to term the dangerous classes of society. The walls of that little study listened to strange histories, not often in the chance of human lots, brought across the threshold of delicate homes. Strange figures not known to the pew-roll of the central church skulked in on Sunday evenings, and stood, savage, unkempt, like centaurs, up and down the crowded aisles. The heavy pew-owners were gratified, and proposed a mission church. "'If these men and women go, I go with them,' said John Rose, in a deep voice with which his deacons were not familiar. "'Turn them out into a mission church if you will, but you turn me there, too.' So the rich and the poor met together in this young prophet's church, for the Lord's sake, who was the maker of them all. And John Rose bent to his sacred work with awed and humble eyes, seeking only on the knees of his heart to know wherefore he had been found worthy of that fate than which neither life nor death has more glorious to give the Christian pastor, that the common people heard him gladly. That supervision of suffering and sinning homes which his theory of Christian service involved, he assumed at the start, in person, to an extent which experience compelled him to retrench, but which served to form a peculiar tie between himself and his clientele. He had often invited Mrs. Ostrander to accompany him upon one of these visiting tours, at the lower end of the town, 
and one day she went. It had been an uncomfortable day. The child had cried a great deal. Company had come from out of town just as she had, for the first time for weeks, locked her studio door behind her. The weather was extreme, and it was not so easy as usual to be patient with the heat, to which she was, at best, almost morbidly sensitive. They had taken no vacation this year, at least she had not. Her husband ran down to the beach for a week or so, as usual with a Harmouth party, the Hogarths and Allens and so on. But boarding at a watering-place with a three-month's baby is a modified form of human bliss, which Avis had felt compelled to decline. On this evening she was alone. Philip was out on faculty business. She trod the hot pavement to Coy's home, with that restlessness which is the keenest element of physical distress in a New England July day. Coy was busy. It was something about the mosquitoes. But whether they had killed the baby, or the baby had killed the mosquito, Avis did not distinctly understand, and did not offer to stay and discover. The fire of the outer air was preferable to the smouldering atmosphere of the house. She joined John Rose gladly, and they descended into the inferno, in which the dregs of a large town are to be found upon a July night. It is not to the purpose of this story to dwell upon the sights, which, for the first time in a refined and sheltered life, passed at a town's breadth from them met Avis's young eyes that night. They were the eyes of a woman tender and true, but they were those of an artist, to whom it had been mercifully given, while her visions were young, inchoate, and quick to dissolve, to be a little colour-blind to misery for beauty's sake. It is enough to say that Avis understood that night how the insight of a single hour, like a torch, may flare out across the width and breadth of a life's work. She understood how great men have seen the drawing of great purposes, the body-colour of great inspirations, gone false in the revelation of such hours. She understood how Frere can exhaust an inspiration upon the muscle in the cheek of a sewing-girl starving in an attic, and how Millet was exiled from Paris for daring to paint the misery of a present life. Certain sights which she saw that night in the tenement houses of Harmouth pursued her for years with the force of vocal cries. She felt that, when she was at work again, they would syllable themselves, of sheer necessity, in some form. It was still a long time, however, before she recognized in herself what she could presume to call a passion to express the moan of human famine. "'One other case,' said John Rose, as they turned from the furnace of an attic room, in which three families dwelt and damned themselves as comfortably as they might. "'Just one more, and we will go. Coy bade me be sure and see this woman. Up three flights, across the court, if you can make it. The last we heard of her she could not get about, and so her business was falling behind. But we are not to understand that she was knocked down and trampled on. She fell. It is surprising how insecure of foot women with drunken husbands as a class are found to be. She is a very respectable woman, from the country. I got her a little book agency a good while ago, and he doesn't get home very often, and so she gets along. And Coy sent her away for a vacation last year. But I'll just run up and ask how it goes with her." At that threshold Avis shrank instinctively, begging John Rose to go in without her. The woman came out, however, into the stifling entryway, when the young minister had completed his errand, and gravely said, "'Will you not come in?' She was a dark-eyed, rather delicate creature, with a scar across her forehead. "'This is Mrs. Ostrander,' said John Rose. "'Yes,' said the woman, after a pause. Will not Mrs. Ostrander step into my room?" "'I was a stranger,' replied Avis, giving her hand, which the other, after a moment's hesitation, coldly touched. "'I did not feel that I had any right to intrude upon you.' "'No,' said the woman again. 
You had not. That is true. But every one is not so ready to see what is right." An uneasy sympathy with a sorrow, more impressive because so foreign to her fancy, led Avis to turn as she went down, and say in her pleasant womanly way, "'If I can be of any use to you, I hope you will sometime come to see me as well as Mrs. Rose.' The woman did not reply, but stood and watched them as they felt their way down the dark stairs. She had noticeable eyes, not so much because of their darkness—and they were very dark—as because of their deadness. They seemed either to have lost, or never to have had, the refractive power. They were the colour of cold coal when it is in shadow. They were the sort which gave an uncomfortable sensation of having been once familiar with them, but of having been disgracefully forgotten the where or the when. Avis was dully conscious of such a superstition, as she crept down the stairs and out into the oppressive night. She asked John Rose more particularly about the woman, thinking that possibly, when Philip published that text-book which had been coming so long, but never came, he might be able to put the poor thing in the way of some slight increase to her precarious business. But when she spoke to Philip about it, she did not succeed in exciting his interest in the matter, and the chapel-bell was ringing him away. Her husband's interests in many things seemed to her, somehow, less vivid than they were. It was while the incidents of the evening spent among John Rose's patients were still cutting keenly upon her memory, that word was brought to her one morning that a book-agent had called. Something was wrong that day. The baby was sick, perhaps, or she herself was overworn, and she reminded the servant, with some emphasis, of the rule of the house touching the admission of peddlers. "'It's not so much a peddler, ma'am, as a lady,' replied Marianne, hesitating. "'And she's been badly hurt upon the forehead, ma'am.' Avis put down the baby. She remembered afterwards that the child clung to her with an irritable persistence. She took his little hands forcibly from her neck, and went. She recognized the woman at once, the scar, the coal-cold eyes, and a certain dignity that held itself through her meagre dress, as well-developed muscles do through obedient tissue. The woman wore grey clothes, and carried a little agent's bag. "'I am glad you are able to be out,' began Mrs. Ostrander at once. "'Mr. Rose told me you had been ill. Pray do not stand.' "'I prefer to stand.' the woman said, waving away the easy-chair which Avis rolled towards her. There was an awkward pause, which her visitor made no motion to break. Avis said kindly, "'Can I serve you in any way? Have you a book to show me to-day?' "'I did not come to sell you any book. I came to say good-bye. I am going away. I wanted to see you once before I go. I am going to Texas. My husband has come home, and taken the notion to go to Texas. The law compels me to go with him as if I were a horse or a cow. Women don't think of such things when they marry. I've had a hell of a life with my husband." The woman brought these words out monotonously, as if she spoke of a matter of course, as if she had said, I've walked half a mile, or I have had my breakfast. "'I am sorry, indeed I am sorry for you,' murmured Avis, at a dead loss how to conduct a scene like this. "'My name is Jessop,' proceeded the book-agent in the same tone. "'Susan Jessop. I didn't like the man when I married him. I loved another man. But I've got long past that. I never told this before. You're wondering why, in God's name, I've told this to you, Mrs. Ostrander. In God's name, then, I don't know. I didn't mean to. Upon my word, I didn't. Is your husband at home?" The excitement of this Mrs. Jessop's manner had so visibly and suddenly increased that Avis found herself faintly disturbed by it, and stood wishing that John Rose were at hand to take care of his own patients. It was with a perceptible dignity, though gently enough, that she said, 
My husband is out this morning. I'm sorry. Could he have done anything to help you? Do you wish to see him?" No, said the woman abruptly. He could not help me, and I do not wish to see him. I'm glad he's out. I thought I'd like to know he was out. Perhaps you've heard, Mrs. Ostrander, that I used to know your husband before he was married. My name was Susan Wanamaker. I lived in New Hampshire in the same town with him." "'Why, yes,' said Avis slowly. "'Yes, I remember. I have heard Professor Ostrander speak of you. We were great friends once, your husband and I,' pursued her visitor with a narrow look at her. "'I remember to have heard him—to have heard him say some such thing himself,' replied Avis. Her lips had become quite dry, so that she moved them with difficulty, and her words went clumsily. A similar stiffness seemed to have settled upon the action of her mind. Contingencies to which she would not have stooped to give a name, pressed in upon her, and seemed to exert a compelling influence upon her speech. She was conscious of choosing her words with a terrible exactness. "'Oh, he's told you, then, has he?' said Mrs. Jessop sharply. "'You knew that I once expected to marry him. I suppose some husbands do tell their wives everything. I never expected that Philip Ostrander would make such a husband.' "'We have spoken together of you,' said Avis slowly. In the pause of her voice, the baby's cry came from overhead. She put out her hand to hold herself by the chair which her visitor had refused. She spoke to this stranger with the ceremonious reserve which the circumstances would seem to warrant. But that sensitively responsive sympathy of hers, which no personal exigency could blunt, led her on to say, "'You should have told us—my husband and me—that you were so unhappy, in such need. You must have been most miserable, Mrs. Jessop, to have exposed yourself or me to a conversation such as this. What, then—what now can I do for you to make it worth while for either of us that we should—speak in this way?" "'I saw you at the funeral,' proceeded the other abruptly, disregarding Avis's words as if the force of her own reflection had deadened her power of hearing. I was up there on a visit, to get away from Jessop for a while. I was there with my old friends. I used to be very fond of Mrs. Ostrander. She wanted it all to go on, before I married Jessop. She thought Philip didn't know his own mind. He wasn't always apt to. Then once I met him here in Harmouth, in a snowstorm, before he married you. And once I went to the chapel church to see you. I don't blame him. Why, I shall see that face of yours till I die. And I'm a woman. He was a man. Oh, you think I've come to taunt and torment you. Women do such things. You think I'm an insolent creature. Some of us are. But I'm not that kind. I'm not jealous. I'm only desperate. I'd like to see the man that was worth, down at the core of him, worth a woman's getting jealous for. The sort of life I've led spreads over you like ivy poison. You distrust the whole lot of him because one bad man brushed against you. When I knew him he was such a handsome boy. Oh, you've got him. And I've got such a brute. That's the difference between us. It's a monstrous difference. It's a monstrous difference. She unfolded her thin hands from the old shawl in which she had held them wrapped while she stood talking, and bringing them together at the knuckles, opened their palms, and spread them out slowly and impressively before Avis, as if they had been facts patent to the conversation. There is a force peculiar to itself in the mere anatomical appeal of an emaciated hand. It is difficult to believe in the grand despair of a person with plump fingers. Avis felt herself growing paler and paler under this pressure. She tried to speak, but words looked distant and small, too small to be gathered up. "'Married women don't often look happier than you do,' proceeded Susan Jessop a little wildly. "'I didn't think Philip Ostrander could make anybody look so happy. He got tired of me. 
I thought he would get tired of every other woman. "'We will not discuss my husband any more this morning, if you please,' said Mrs. Ostrander, collecting herself, not with severity, but with a touch of stateliness. "'And I think, Mrs. Jessop, if there is really nothing I can do for you, it will be best for both of us to put an end to a scene which cannot be fully agreeable to either of us.' "'You do it gracefully.' said Susan Jessop, with a bitter smile, which, however, subsided instantly. When I found what I'd said, I expected to be sent at once. I hope you'll believe, Mrs. Ostrander, that I didn't come here meaning to make trouble. I didn't even mean to speak about it when I came in, and I'm glad he had the grace to tell you." She turned with her hand upon the door, lifting her face slowly. Avis saw that it might once have been a rather pretty, uneventful country face. "'I don't know why I came,' she said, rather pitifully. Why does a woman trust herself to do anything, when she's beside herself with things she can't speak of? That's the worst of being a woman. What you go through can't be told. It isn't respectable for one woman to tell another what she has to bear. When I saw you last week I wanted to pull you into my room and cry in your arms. But I can't cry." Some expression of sympathy hung confusedly upon Mrs. Ostrander's lips, but she was not sure if she uttered it. She felt herself turning dizzy and faint and the wild figure in the grey shawl blurred before her eyes. She remembered, however, holding out her hand, and that the other took it with a passionate movement, and held it for a moment like a screen before the embers of her eyes, before she closed the door, and trod heavily across the hall, and out. Susan Jessop trod heavily, but her heart was at that moment light with a certain noble joy. We hear much of the jealousy and scorn of women among themselves. It is not often that we are reminded of the quickly flashing capacity for passionate attraction and generous devotion which renders the relation of woman to woman one of the most subtle in the world, and one exposed most to the chance of what we call romantic episodes. This little wretched, excited creature turned her face from Avis with a sense of having divinely outwitted her. She knew perfectly well that Philip Ostrander had never told his wife of that affair, but his wife should never know that she knew it. That day passed much like other days. Ostrander was very busy, and if his wife were a shade more quiet than usual, he was not likely to notice her. He dined with John Rose, and ran in for a little music at the Allens in the evening, and it was late when at last, the child being well asleep, and the women of the house in bed, Avis told him that she wished to talk with him. He said, "'What is it, my dear?' He was pacing the room, their own room, looking more than usually comfortable. He was in his richly coloured dressing-gown, that Avis thought became him. He had an indefinably masculine air of mastery over his circumstances, and enjoyment in them, which it is impossible to put into words, but to which a woman is very sensitive. At that moment, when, drawing his hand easily out of his pocket, he came up and touched his wife under the chin, lifting her face, Avis felt a dull sense of displeasure. It seemed to her excited thought that he touched her lightly much as he twirled the great blue silk tassel of the dressing-gown, as if she were, in some sense, the idle ornament of a comfortable hour. She drew her face back, and said with grave abruptness, "'Philip, something has occurred which I must tell you at once.' "'Very well, my dear,' said Philip, smiling down. "'There was a book-agent here this morning. Her name was Susan Wanamaker.' "'Has Susan Wanamaker been here?' said Ostrander, standing still. "'And told me, Philip—' in my own house, that she was once engaged to be married to my husband." Ostrander slowly removed the hand with which she had sought to caress his wife's withdrawing face. The lordly silk tassel itself seemed to shrink somehow, as it hung from his side. He took a step back, 
and thrust both hands again into his pockets. Avis did not look up at him. At that moment a deep instinct forbade her to meet her husband's eyes. It was as if she thus saved herself and him from some vague disgrace or grief. Whatever it was, whatever it could be that flitted across them, her husband should never have it to remember that his wife had surprised his eyes by a stratagem. She would almost as soon surprise his soul. When she had thus given him time, she lifted her own, dim with her sweet sense of honour, but in his she saw then only that darting, scattered gleam, the quicksilver look. In a deep, displeased voice he said, "'And my wife discussed such a matter with a strange woman, a book-peddler, before consulting me?' "'You wrong your wife,' blazed Avis, springing to her feet and holding herself grandly. "'I am afraid you have wronged me from the beginning. I am afraid you do not see, my husband does not see, what is wrong and what is right. I don't understand you, Philip." "'I don't see what could have possessed Susan,' said Philip Ostrander. Perhaps nothing in the range of the English vocabulary would have struck Avis so drearily just then as those few words. She could not conceive of any others which would have so emphasized the distance between the temper of her thought and his. It was a sense of this distance and difference which oppressed her to an extent that, for the moment, obliterated the admission which the words themselves implied. But with his characteristic quickness, Ostrander's manner suddenly changed. He shook his bright hair impatiently, as if shaking off a temporary annoyance, and swiftly turning, threw himself upon the lounge and held out his arms. "'Come, Avis,' he said in his usual voice, "'come and hear my story now.' The slight arraignment of her justice in this appeal touched Avis's delicate sense of honour. True, she had not heard his story. She stirred slowly towards him, and sat down at the other end of the sofa. "'Come,' he repeated, still holding out his arms, "'I can't talk to you over there.' "'No?' "'Well, then, perhaps I deserve it. But upon my honour, Avis, there is so little in this affair that it never occurred to me to tell you. I suppose Susan Wanamaker did think she was going to marry me once. She was eighteen, a country schoolgirl, and I was just past twenty, a college boy. I found I did not love her, and I told her so. Was there anything dishonourable in that? You see at once the dishonour would have been in going on with the affair." "'The dishonour lay,' began Avis, but stopped. She could not bring her lips to say that dishonour lay in her husband. "'The mistake lay,' she went on. "'Permit me one minute,' interrupted Ostrander, "'till you have heard me out. Grant that I had a boy's fancy for this girl. Is that such a crime, Avis? Has a man never blundered with a pretty face before? Very well, then. Grant that I did not tell you, and so blundered again. I was wrong, I perfectly admit it. I see it now, if I never saw it before. Poor Susan has made a mess of it, for which I am outrageously sorry. I wouldn't have had you so mortified for the world. It's a confounded faux pas." "'She does not know,' said Avis, more gently. I told her we had talked of you. She thinks you had told me. But the mortification was the least of it, Philip." The mortification was the most of it on Ostrander's face at that moment. His lips murmured some phrase of relief, but his heart took little comfort in it. Susan was not dull, and Avis's marble rectitude of speech was not calculated to make the most of a matter. Who could have thought that Susan would have turned up in this way? Women needed to be guarded against the accidents of their relations to each other as much as against graver indiscretions, though he must admit that his wife seemed to have held herself with admirable prudence throughout a very awkward position. Poor Avis! How solitary she looked over at the end of the sofa, across the colour of the cushion! Ostrander at that moment wished with all his heart that his wife might have loved some better fellow. 
He wished he had that talent for openness, which a perfectly honourable man may yet lack, but of which he felt the want keenly in an emergency like this. He said, with genuine agitation, "'I was wrong, Avis, quite wrong. I ought to have told you all about that affair. And it's not quite true, perhaps,' he added frankly, "'that it never occurred to me to tell you. I think it did, it must have. But I was having such extra hard work of it to win you. Do me the justice to remember. And a breath would have blown out my chance.' Perhaps the plain truth was I didn't dare talk about it. You were not in a state to be tolerant of a lot of boyish nonsense. And I knew I had nothing wrong or base to hide from you. And every other woman seemed so far away from me after I knew you, and all other feelings so false." Her husband spoke with a tremulous passion, which she did not often look to hear now, in the stress and haste of daily care, into which marriage seemed to resolve itself, in which it seemed a man and woman must take their love for granted to save time. She yielded to the stir of feeling like a harp to a hand. When Philip said with a delicate reproach in his voice, "'After all, Avis, I think I have the worst of it. You have nothing to repent.' She crept towards him across the rose-coloured cushion, with a long, exhausted sigh. She was perplexed at finding herself, at the very moment when her nature had risen most emphatically in rebuke of his, most weakened with the need of his love. Was there always an incalculable element in the radical metamorphosis which wifehood wrought? Was this one of the ambuscades of nature against which a strong woman must perforce go fortifying herself to the end of life? She hid herself, she would have hidden herself from her own consciousness just then, upon her husband's breast. For him he bowed his head over her in a solemn and solitary shame. He could not know what was in her guarded heart. He felt that he had in a dim sense lost the right to know. They sat clinging, but separate. Presently he began to talk to her again of what they had been saying, thinking it most natural and best. He spoke of the night in which he had met poor Susan in the streets of Harmouth. He dwelt upon every detail of the affair which he could recall. The process gave him a late, agreeable sense of candour. He went farther. He told his wife that he supposed he had been a susceptible boy. His fancy, he said, had been a gusty thing till he found her. He had never felt quite sure that he was capable of a permanent feeling, till he loved her. He spoke sadly, as we speak of a misfortune of the nature as distinct from a fault. Aristotle ranks confidence as one of the passions. Avis felt rather sorry for her husband, and feared she had been too harsh. And then the baby cried, and she went to him, and Philip went down to finish the article on the electric battery. It was late when he came upstairs again. He found Avis fallen asleep upon the lounge, half wrapped in the shoulder-robe from the hammock. The rose and white silk was fading, like all the other little fancies about the house. His wife's face, too, seemed to have faded with the rest of the bridal brightness. She had thrown herself down with the especial grace which great exhaustion gives to a lithe figure. Avis was too much of an artist ever to choose an awkward pose. She would have writhed under one, he thought, had she been dead. If she had been alone in the universe, she would have thrown that firm hand of hers, upon which no eye should ever rest, with just that slowly surrendered outline across the happy pillow. Her hand was a trifle worn, too, like her cheek. Her husband stood looking down. There swept and gathered upon his face an expression which it was as well for both of them, perhaps, that Avis did not see. Whether it were most of self-reproach or self-pity, of tenderness or terror, it were hard to say. Whether he the more distrusted himself at that moment, or the more believed in her, perhaps Philip Ostrander could not, for his soul's sake, have answered. He stooped and kissed her. He was more in love with his wife just then, than a busy man can afford to be every day in the year. 
Avis stirred, and lifting her hand, gravely drew his face beside hers on the pillow. She did not tell him that she had not been asleep. She listened to the faint tapping of the elm-bough upon the window. A dreaming bird chirped in its nest somewhere in the summer night. In the sensitive, windless distance, the college boys were singing Kinkel's Soldier's Farewell. The wildly swelling words came up, How can I bear to leave thee? The mournful monotone of the frogs piped from the meadows beyond the town, and under all fitful music she heard the chant of the eternal sea. Afterward she wondered how it would have been, daring to wish that they had died that night, they too, dumb with the sweetness of reconciliation and resolve. Nay, they three, Philip with the boyish love and laughter in his eyes, and the baby sleeping in the crib, and she herself just then content to have it so. It was Philip who was wakeful that night. Visions which he would have just then gone blind to forget, electrotyped themselves upon the half-lit room. Long odorous country twilights, the scent of honeysuckle about a farmhouse door, the pressure of confiding fingers on his arm, the uplifting of a young face, the touch of trustful life, pursued him rather with the force of sensations than reflections. With these came other ghosts, incoherent fancies, aimless fevers, nameless dreams. He shielded his eyes from the nursery lamp, watching the unconscious face of his wife with a fine envy which only a noble soul, or the nobler side of an inharmonious soul, could have commanded. She, she only of themselves, he said, was the truly married. He could think of no lesser joy which he would not have sacrificed just then, if he could have brought to her that absolutely unmortgaged imagination which she had brought to him. He drank the ashes of his own nature in silence, as soldiers swallow in their wine the cinders of their worn-out colours, before unfurling new. Faint, and more faintly in the distance, from the now dispersing boys, the cry came up, Farewell, farewell, my own true love. End of chapter 16